Okay, Romans 6, we're going to start in verse 12 in just a minute, but I just want to remind us of where we were last week. And if, as I'm teaching this morning, I sound like Neil, it's because I'm wearing his belt. My belt popped when I was trying to get my stuff together and Neil to the rescue. So, my mom's supposed to be bringing me one, but I might preach in this one. All right. All right, so last week we talked about the new life in Christ. You remember Romans 1, Gentiles have sinned. Romans 2, Jews have sinned. Romans 3, all have sinned. Romans 4, Paul says, you're justified by faith just like Abraham. That's always been God's plan. Nothing's changed about that. Romans 5, Paul says, you haven't lost anything. In Christ, our lives are richly blessed. No amount of hardship can change that. That's Romans 5, 2 through 5. He says, we rejoice in tribulation and persecution and all of these different things. And then at the end of Romans 5, in verses 12 through 21, Paul talks about the idea of Adam and how he ruined the world through his sin and how one act of obedience through Jesus changed everything. And you remember Romans 6 and verse 1 starts with, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein it? And then from verse 3, really down through verse 11, Paul talks about how we should be transformed because of our baptism. Don't you know that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Just like Christ died and was buried, we've been buried with him in baptism into death so that we might rise to walk in newness of life. And that's what we talked about. Verses 6 and 7, the body of sin is destroyed and now we're alive and we live our lives for Jesus Christ and righteousness. All right, so that's where we were. Romans 6 is going to continue this idea. Um, Romans 6 is going to continue this idea of our new life in Christ and what that looks like. And then we'll get to Romans chapter 7. All right, go ahead to Romans 6 and notice verses 12 through 14. Romans 6, and I'm going to read 12 through 14. Same idea, Paul saying we're dead to sin based on our submission to Jesus and our death and baptism. Here's verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. Okay, read verse 12 again to yourself silently, and then I want you to tell me in your own words what you think it means. And I might just call on you randomly. Don't think about being called on randomly. Think about Romans 6, 12 and what it says. Forget about that part. Just read the verse again to yourself, and I want you to start formulating some thoughts on what this means. Remember, this is in light of your baptism. You've been dead with Christ. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. And then he says this. Okay, verse 12. What is Paul saying? Summarize it in your own words. Russell, what's he saying? We're at, uh, at war with flesh. Our bodies wants and desires and we don't need to let, let it win. Okay, we don't need to let it win. We're at war with the flesh, Russell says. We don't need to let it win. Our desires and what God wants. Anybody else? What? Romans 12, 6, 12. Okay, you can't continue in sin. You might draw a line from verse 12 to verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 12 is a part of that answer. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. Anybody else before I start calling on people at random? It's just rain and make you obey, so it's more like it has control. Okay, it's control. Not just trying to turn away, but also it's controlling you still. Yeah, don't let yeah. sin control you is what we got. Okay, anybody else? We'll do like three more. Anybody else? What does verse 12 mean? Just verse 12. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, Miss Kim, so we've got new life. We live in Christ, and I think you said the last part was try not to sin. Good, good. Travis, what was verse 20? I didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah. Um, almost like a warning. You know, like, yeah, a warning? Like they know that it's going to be there, it's going to be present in your life. So don't let it be prepared. Yeah, don't let it take hold of you. Andy? It's like when, before you were baptized, you were trying to figure out ways to sin. And after you're baptized, you need to try to figure out ways not to sin. Yeah, that's right. So before baptism, you were trying to figure out how to sin. Now you're trying to figure out how not to. Here's my question. In light of verse 12, is it right for us to refer to ourselves as, well, we're just sinners. You know, everybody just sins and everybody's going to fall short and we're just sinners. According to what Paul said in verse 12. Now, Paul didn't say don't let sin occur in your mortal bodies because we will sin. There are occasions and actions that come up in our lives and we sin. First John 1 and verse 8, First John 1 and verse 10 says, if you deny that you sin, you sin in the very denial of sinning. But according to Paul here, let not sin reign, as Robert was saying, or rule in your mortal body. That means Christians are not just sinners. I, I know what we mean when we say it. We're not perfect people and everybody in the world sins. But according to this verse, we're not just the lop of sinners like everybody else in the world, or at least we shouldn't be. Paul saying don't let sin reign or rule in your mortal bodies, meaning, as has already been said, don't let it take control. That just shouldn't be the case. And as Russell mentioned, it's a war and it's a fight. But evidently, Paul thinks we can win this fight about the reigning. I'm not talking about isolated actions and occurrences. I'm talking about the reign and rule of sin in our lives. Paul says, don't let that happen. Why? Because you've been what? Everybody. Because you've been what? Buried with Christ, baptized, and the old man died. And Paul says, because of that, you should be different. Notice the verse one more time. Let not sin reign in your what body? That's interesting because the Bible says you and I are getting new bodies. Romans 8, 22 to 25, 1 Corinthians 15. And it wouldn't surprise you if Paul said in those bodies, sin won't reign because they'll be transformed. But Paul didn't say that. He said right now in these bodies, don't let sin reign. So there's going to be a transformation and glorification of the body, according to Paul, at the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. But Paul will not let us off the hook, inspired by the Spirit. He says, in these bodies right now, sin doesn't have to reign. It doesn't have to. It's not just inevitable that, well, we've been baptized and we're just going to sin and these kinds of things are just going to have dominion. Paul says it shouldn't be. Kevin? I was about to say, I just wanted to listen to says, then, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin that it is full grown brings forth death. Yeah, so in James, James is saying, don't say God's tempting you, James 1.13. Every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then there's this progression, because you give in to it. But Paul's saying you don't have to. Look at verse 13. He says, don't yield your members as instruments to unrighteousness. He's talking about our body, our parts. Don't use your body. At least two ideas come forth from these verses. One, it means we don't have to let sin run our lives. If we have no choice, why give the warning? As Travis mentioned, it is a warning. The second thing, though, means it can happen, so be careful. Sin can reign and rule in your mortal body. The baptismal waters are not magical. If we don't put up a fight, sin will reign and rule in our mortal bodies. And Paul says, I don't want that to happen. And then in verse 14, he says, what does he say in 14? Read that for me. Todd, can you read verse 14? For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. In verse 12, Paul says, Don't let it happen. In 14, he says, What? 
ain't happening. It won't. Not if you're under grace. Sin won't reign in your mortal bodies. We should probably stop talking about ourselves like slaves to sin. We're just a big lot of sin. The New Testament doesn't use that terminology. It doesn't say that about us. It says we're different individuals because of our relationships. Sin will not have reign in your mortal body. So Paul says the choice is ours. We can either let sin reign over us or, verse 12, or we can let grace run, reign over us. The choice is ours. Show of hands, anybody ever left a job, quit a job, got a different job? Show of hands, nice and high. What if you were at Kroger and your former employee saw you there and showed up and started ordering you around? You go to the mall, you see this old boss, he says, I wear a size 10. Go get me those in size 34 in pants or 36. And I want black and I want blue skinny jeans. You say, what are you doing? I don't work there anymore. I don't work for you anymore. And Paul's saying, we should be that appalled when sin says, Hey, go over there and do this. And do, we don't work at Sinners R Us anymore. We've resigned, right? And so we don't just, sin can't show up and say, hey, go curse and go lie and just start ordering us around. We've resigned. We don't work at the same establishment anymore. And so Paul's saying, don't let sin just reign in your, only, in your mortal bodies. I know the illustration breaks down at some point because we do sin, but that doesn't mean we become an employee of sin again. Paul says we don't work there. We still are slaves, but instead of sin, now we work for who? Everybody. We work for God based on our relationship with Christ. And that's what happens. At, you see, that's what's happening at baptism. Sometimes people say, well, y'all make a big deal about baptism. According to Romans 6, we probably aren't making a big deal about baptism. Because Paul's saying in that moment, you're turning in your keys, you're resigning from sinners are us. And you're deciding to work for Jesus Christ and sin won't reign in your mortal body. Now, it won't happen overnight, but it should happen eventually. Sanctification is a lifelong process according to the New Testament, but that's ultimately the goal. And so Paul says, we shouldn't be saying to ourselves, well, I'm only human. There's a sense in which we're not. We're kind of superhuman according to the New Testament. Titus 3 and verse 5 says, we've been washed with the regeneration and we're new people because of what happens at baptism. We're not perfect, but we don't have to be slaves to sin. Any questions on this before we go forward? Any comments or questions on this idea? The difference is the fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, there's one more thing. Yeah, you know, the difference is the fight. Because I know a lot of people are just going, well, that's just the thing I struggle with. I guess that's just how I am. Yeah. And it's like, well, now you need to be fighting against that yeah. thing. You may always struggle with it, but you need to be trying to fight it. I think, I think that's right. And that, go ahead. No, it's fine. Yeah, that's the big difference. Are you putting up a fight? Are you resisting? Or are you just going along for the ride? Are you just going along with your natural passions and desires? Quickly, go to 1 John 3. 1 John 3, and um, the first person that gets there, read 1 John 3 and verse 6, and then somebody else, 1 John 3 and verse 9. And a third person, read 1 John 5 and verse 18. So 3, 6, 3, 9, and 5, 18, really quick, because we've got to get through chapter 7. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Now, in 3.6, he's not saying you never commit isolated acts. I think newer translations have does not continue sinning or something like that. Capturing the present tense in Greek, they're saying this isn't a person's lifestyle. He's not saying you never commit acts of sin. He's saying you don't work at sinners are us. You change. 3.9, what does John say? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. All right, I know we're worried about the sin language, but do you catch the way the New Testament is not just saying it doesn't happen? It's a preposterous idea, according to the New Testament writers. The seed of God's in this person. They wouldn't dare just full-fledged run in the direction of sin. Last one, 518. 1 John 518. 
We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. See, the whole world lies in wickedness is what he'll say in 19, but that's not us. Our lives are changed, and that change primarily happens at baptism, and it's worked out from there. Baptism is a day of rejoicing, but baptism is also a funeral. It's your funeral and mine to the old man, and we rise to walk in newness of life. Okay, Romans 6, I'm going to read 15 through 23, because we do need to get through chapter 7 today. All right, if y'all find me stalling, you just kind of do like this, okay? Some of you probably just want to do that to hurry us on, but I mean, if we get, we got to get through chapter 7, so watch the time. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But God be thanked that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so in 15, Paul rephrases 6.1's question. And 6.1, shall we continue in sin that what? Grace may abound. Look at 6.15. And Paul's basically given us a bunch of information about our lives after baptism. And he rephrases the question. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? What's the answer to that question in verse 15? Everybody, shake your nod. No, why? Are we to continue in sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means, God forbid, don't let it happen. That's the right answer. Why? We've been talking about it for the past. We can't just keep sinning. Just why not? Grace is there. We have to keep trying to do better. You're right, but why? We shouldn't keep sinning. We can't keep sinning just because grace is there. That's his point. But what's the motivation behind it? Why can't we keep sinning just living a life however we want? Whoever you present yourself as a slave is your master. That's a true fact. But what's the motivation behind us not working there anymore? When we got what? Everybody. Baptized. I think y'all were going to. I knew it. Yeah, when you got baptized, it's not a trick. Paul's just bringing up the same thing over and over again to say, that just couldn't be you. He says in 16, as Andy mentioned, we are slaves to whoever we serve. Jesus says in John 8, 34, whoever you serve, that's your master. Whoever obeys sin, John 8, 34, is the slave of sin. So if you continue to just live a life of sin, according to Jesus and according to Paul, you're a slave of sin. But Paul says that's not you. Verse 17, he says you were the servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that pattern of doctrine. Newer translations have that form of teaching. And you've been made free from sin and you become servants of righteousness. Now look at verse 17. Somebody help me out with this. Paul says you were servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that pattern or that form of teaching. What is the pattern or form of teaching that we've obeyed? What is the pattern we follow? Christ, yes. Christ specifically in Romans 6, 3 through 5. Remember Paul said you were buried like he was buried. You died like he died. You were raised like he was raised. That's the pattern. Yes, it includes the entirety of New Testament teaching. 
But the pattern, the model that Paul is given is right here in Romans 6. He said, you obey from the heart. That pattern of teaching delivered to you. You walked right, right in Jesus' steps. Just like he died, you did. Just like he was buried, so were you. Just like he was raised, so were you. None of this can make sense to a person that wasn't baptized. But if Paul's speaking about baptism, it makes perfect sense. We obey a pattern of teaching. And that standard of teaching, as Brittany mentioned, is Christ. It's based on the New Testament. And now we work for a different master. Paul says in verse 19 and 20, serve God just like you used to serve sin. Do you see that in 19 and 20? You know, some of us were all-star sinners, and we're trying to be subpar saints. We were great at sin. I mean, we made the Pro Bowl every year for sin. But now in Christ, like, we're kind of shy. We're not really well. Paul's saying that same energy, not new energy, not new gifting or even new talents. Paul says, take the same energy that you used to give to sin and transfer it further to Jesus Christ. Just as hard as you used to run the streets or lie or lust, the same zeal and transfer it to Jesus Christ. Who do you think in the Bible did that, what we just described, better than anybody else? Saul. 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 Same, same thing. Paul needed to change teams. But that zeal, that passion, the same man that had letters in his hands going to bind Christians would have letters in his hands to send to churches to change their lives. He took the same zeal. And Paul said, when you and I become Christians, we should do that same thing. We should be asking ourselves, was I a better employee at Sinners R Us than I am now in the church of Jesus Christ? Was I working harder for the devil than I am for God? Paul says, God forbid. Don't let it be true. Look at verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms. Look at verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present yourselves as what? Slaves to righteousness. And so Paul's saying, I want you to work for God just like you know you should. The goal in Christianity is not merely to squeak by. It's actually to be God's servant and to serve him. Who do we work for now again? God. So take the same illustration from earlier. Your old boss sees you in Kroger at the mall and orders you around. You don't do what he says because you don't work there anymore. But what if you're a new boss? You go to work on Monday. You go in and you tell him, I'm not doing that. I won't do that. I don't really like doing that. I don't want to go to, you go to the coffee machine. I'm not doing it. You'll be on Indeed.com before the afternoon, right? You know that. Paul's saying, listen, you work for Jesus. You can't tell him, no, I'm not doing that. You can't tell him, I don't work for you. I'm not going to serve you. You're going to do what he says because you're his servant. You're his son, but you, you work for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He says, what, what fruit are you getting? And those things of which you're ashamed in verse 21. What does that mean? What is Paul asking us in verse 21? What fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What is he saying about our former lives? They didn't yield any what? Fruit. Yeah, that's what he says. But like in your own words, right? fruit, we can read. Yeah, what does he mean though? You aren't getting any what from it, from a sinful life? Benefit. Yeah, there was no profit in it. Be careful about your former life and sin and how you talk about it. I think sometimes we can become proud of how we used to be. You ever hear anybody threaten people with the old them like they're not ashamed of it? Don't make me go back to, I used to, like we're proud of it. Paul's saying it's really nothing to boast in. You don't just sit around and rehearse old sin stories and talk about who could do the most or if you really get me angry, I used to be able to. Don't make me flip a switch. Paul's saying, what fruit were you getting in those things? What was positive or good about those things? There's really nothing to boast in. Instead, we should be living our lives for Jesus Christ because that leads to eternal life. I know Romans 6.23 is the most famous verse in this section. The wages of sin is what? Yeah. But 
but that's not Paul's punchline because he's not talking about you and me. The payment for sin is death. If you work for sin, that's what you would expect. But what's the rest of the verse say? And who is that for? That's for us. That's what we should be focused on. The wages of sin is death, but we've already died to sin. So that's not our payment. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's act like we work for God. I mean, let's really work for him and serve him. That's Paul's point in Romans 6. All right, takeaways from Romans 6 before we go to Romans 7. Biblical grace never grants permission to sin. That's number one. Bible grace won't give you permission to sin. Number two, baptism is a big deal, both before and after it's done. And we need to be balanced in making sure we emphasize both. Number three, we don't serve sin as Christians. We kill the old man and let's live the new life. And then number four, whoever we obey is our master, no matter what else we say. Whoever we obey is our master. Doesn't matter what else we say. Okay, Romans 7. So far in Romans, Paul's been telling his Jewish audience, and that's who he's kind of dealing with in these first. He'll get to the Gentiles later, but remember, the church at Rome is having conflict between Jews and Gentiles, and Paul's trying to teach them how to get along. So he's laying out how we became Christians and what that means for us. And so part of that's what's going on in the first part of the book. So far in Romans, Paul's been telling the Jewish audience that all have sinned, and we are saved by what? Everybody saved by that's right. So he wanted them to see they're not missing out on anything. That's chapter five. According to chapter six, you remember Jews would say, yeah, but without the law, people are going to do whatever they want. Nothing can restrain us from sinning. What does Paul say keeps us in check in chapter six? Not the law. That's not what changes us now. But what's our motivation for how we live now? Life ever after and the new life we have in Christ. So he says that's your motivation. So if you're a Jewish person, the next thing you probably would be thinking, and what Paul's going to deal with in chapter 7 is, okay, if we're justified by faith, that makes sense. If we can't keep sinning and this new life is going to restrain the way that I behave, I'm going to live a transformed life because of my baptism, the next question is, what was the point of the old law then? I mean, if there's no point in following the old covenant now, why did God ever give it to us to begin with? And that's what Paul's going to deal with in Romans chapter 7. I hope by the time we finish Romans chapter 7, in about 15 minutes, We'll read the Old Testament like Paul wants us to And hopefully see some of the things that Paul has said about the Christian's relationship to the law So that we can view the whole Bible the way God wants Because he's about to tell the Jewish people in the clearest terms throughout the letter I mean, he's been saying little things about Abraham and about circumcision But in Romans 7, Paul drills down and he says Okay, this is how you as a Christian should view the law and this is what its ultimate purpose and fulfillment was all about. All right, Romans 7, let's read verses. That says 1 through 6. Yep, that's right. Romans 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so Romans 7.1, Paul tells you he's talking to the Jewish half of the church because he says, I'm speaking to those who know the what? The law of Moses. All right, what tactic did we say? This was a few weeks ago, but somebody's going to remember, I hope. 
Um, what tactic did we say Paul uses when he's trying to convince other people of his arguments and that we should consider an evangelism? What does Paul do when he's trying to persuade people to believe something and then he wants them to see it his way? What does Paul typically do? Start where they are. Start where they are and use the things that they believe. Paul says, okay, you want to worship a lot of gods in Athens? You've got an altar to an unknown god. Let's talk about him. Jewish folks, you've got questions about the law. Let's go to your law and actually see what it says, and then maybe this will help you to see my point. So Paul cites their sources. He's trying to get them to see the law has run its course and it's been done away with, and he brings up this example of marriage. He says a woman is bound to her husband as long as he what? Lives. If her husband's alive and she marries a different person while her husband's alive, she separates from him, marries another, she'll be called a what? Adulterous. Paul says the law teaches this. 1 Corinthians 7 and 39, he says the same thing. He says a woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as she lives. Why can't you Why can't you divorce this person to be married to another? What does Paul call it if you do that? Everybody. Adultery. Incidentally, this is why preachers make such a big deal about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Because according to this passage, you can't lawfully be married to two people at the same time. Paul knew Matthew 19. He knew what God's word said about marriage. He says, listen, if Sally marries Bill and Sally divorces Bill and marries Bobby, except for the exception clause in Matthew 19, 9, which would be fornication, sexual immorality, you can call that second arrangement whatever you want. But according to God, it's expensive fornication. It's not marriage. It's adultery. And Paul's working that out about the law and our relationship to the law. But that's his point. He's saying you can only be lawfully married to one person at a time. And if your former spouse is still alive and you divorce them for a reason other than adultery, you've got no right to that person. And so Paul says, this is sort of what I want you to see about the law. That's why he brings this up. Look at verse four. After he makes his point, he says, in the same way, he says, you died so that you could be married to another. When did we die so that we could be married to another? When would these Jewish Christians have died to the old law? Paul's saying, listen guys, you don't have to feel guilty about leaving the old law. You are not cheating on the Old Testament by being married to Jesus Christ because you died. And once a person dies, you can re-what? Married with God's approval and you don't have to feel any shame about it. I've got a friend who was married for 20 years. His wife died abruptly from breast cancer. She was diagnosed and it wasn't long. She passed away. He remarried. He's been married for almost 10 years now. He said when his first wife died and he was remarried, the first time he kissed his new wife, he said, oh, I just felt dirty. I felt terrible. He said, but then it hit me. My first wife, she's in eternal bliss. She's not even thinking about this situation. I've got God's full permission, and it changed everything. But you could imagine how that could have been hard for him to make that transition. Paul's telling Jewish people, I know, I know, I get it. I was a Jew. I'm like you. I know you feel like if you can't bind circumcision. If you can't be justified by the old law, you feel like you're cheating on God. You feel like you've left the old law behind unjustifiably. So Paul says, I'm telling you, you got full permission. Because just like in a marriage, when a spouse dies, you can lawfully remarry with God's full blessing and permission. You died, verse 4, so that you could be married to another, even Christ. You're in a new marriage. You can't be married to two people at the same time. You can't be under two laws at the same time. This matters because even Christians, sometimes we get flaky. I've heard Christians say, members of the church, well, I don't know how I'm about instrumental music. I mean, I feel like it's in the Bible, and maybe we're doing some hermeneutical gymnastics. I mean, maybe we're not being right. Maybe we're jumping over. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the, I mean, can't we just bring it over? Are we making a big deal? You can't be married to two women at the same time. You can't be under two laws at the same time. 
We're reading the Bible just like Jesus and Paul says we should when we make the distinction between the covenants. And when you try to blend those things, that's spiritual adultery. You can't do that. You can't be under two laws at the same time. Paul's point is just like you can't be married to two people at the same time. In our new marriage, we now bring forth fruit to God. Paul says you're not under that old law. You've been released from it, married to Christ, so that you might bear fruit to God. That goes back up to Romans 6 and verse 20. Remember, he says, now you're bearing this new law. The old law is not your spiritual spouse now. And if we obey it, we're doing our new spouse wrong under the new covenant. So sometimes people talk about the Sabbath, the Ten Commandments, and all of these various things. And they say, hey, you, you've got to obey those things. And if you don't, you're being untrue to the Bible. You're not following the Bible. And Paul says here, look at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. We were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law. You see that? Throughout this whole section, just an FYI, Paul never says the law died. He says who died? Yeah. That matters. Because we can't just sometimes Christians say, well, we just ought to throw. Why are we studying the Old Testament? We're not under it. Paul didn't say the law died. We died. And then we were raised from the dead at baptism so we could be married to another. It matters. The law didn't die. We died to the law so we could be married to another. And as a result, we produce fruit for God. In verse 6, he says, you're released from the law that held you captive. So now you can serve in the new way of the spirit. Paul's talking about the old and new covenant or maybe our own spirit so that we can serve God. Paul's point is you've been released. You've got a new life. Live under the new marriage in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. That's what Paul is driving at. So if I'm a Jewish Christian and I'm struggling with my relationship to the Old Testament, Paul says, well, don't worry. Don't be discouraged. In the end, you've got God's permission because you died to the old law so you could be married to another. Romans 7, let's read 7 down through verse 13. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing the death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So that's what Paul, some translations have, exceedingly sinful or something like that. And Paul's saying, now I want to talk to you about the purpose of the law. Okay, you can be married to another. So was the problem the Old Testament law? Now, listen, have you ever heard somebody say or thought, we don't need to study the Old Testament. We don't need to spend much time in it. Anybody ever say that to you? Or you ever hear that? Why are we We're New Testament what? Christians. We're New Testament Christians. Hey, forget the old law. Imagine the Jews struggle, though. Imagine being a Jewish person, spending your whole life learning the Torah by heart. Think about the passages in your Bible. Psalm 1 and verse 2. The blessed man meditates in God's law day and night. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Or your word is a lamp to my feet. A That's about the Old Testament law. Imagine being a Jewish boy and hearing that your whole life, a Jewish young lady. You go to synagogue, you read these passages. You read the genealogies, not like a Christian who thinks, what about all these weird names? Your great, 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 great grandfolks are in those genealogies. And here comes Paul. And here comes Peter. And now they're telling you 
that you are not justified based on your relationship to those texts, but to the Jesus Christ who fulfilled those texts. I'm not saying they're right. I'm just telling you, we probably should have a little bit more sensitivity about the reason <coughs> and the ways Jewish people struggle. But Paul says, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm not telling you the old law is broken. In fact, the old law is not the problem at all. Paul's going to tell us what the problem is. The law is not sin. What does the law actually do, though? It shows us what sin is. Look at verse 7. Romans 7 and verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? What? By no means, or God forbid. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. So you read that verse and you might be thinking, so wait a minute, Hiram. Did people not know what a sin was before the law of Moses? Is that true or false? Did people know what sin was before the law of Moses? Everybody go this way. Yes. So what does Paul mean when he says the law showed me what sin was? Wouldn't have known what covetous was unless the law says don't covet. And when he talks about the law introducing sin, surely people sin from Genesis 3 to Exodus 20 when Moses gave the law. So what does he mean then that the law shows us sin? Kind of like the fruit of the Bible. Yes. Yes. Explain, Russell, but you're right. It, it makes it clear. Exactly. The law shows us sin, capital S-I-N. I mean, people knew they sinned, but once they get, when you're driving down the road, you're going 80 miles per hour, you know you're breaking the speed limit, right? But when you see that speedometer and it's flashing red, this is your speed. The cops are going to pull you over. It didn't make your sin any more intensified, but you kind of get that lump in your throat like, uh-oh, that's the law. See, lying was always lying, but when Moses <laughs> writes it on the tablets, you shall not lie, Exodus 20, 17, thou shall not covet. Well, you've been lusting your whole life, but once the law tells you in your face, it shows sin to be exactly what it is. That was always the purpose of the law. Listen, the law was never meant to produce transformation. The law was always meant to introduce people to their sin and their failure. And Jewish people that were trying to make the law, the transformer, Paul says, you've got the law all wrong. The law can't do that for you. The law can't transform you. Only Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, by the way, he's going to make a big deal about this in Romans 8. And our view of the Holy Spirit makes a big deal because Paul's going to say what really changes a person is not simply read the text and obey, although that's a part of it. People tried to do that under the old law. It wasn't enough to transform them, though. He says the law just introduces you to the fact that you're a lawbreaker and it makes sin plain to see. Russell, great point about the bifocals. The law took advantage of our flesh. Look at Romans 7 and verse 8. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies there. He's saying, listen, sin exposes us as sinners and sin takes advantage. If you have a small child and you say, don't touch the stove because it's hot, what do they want to do? If somebody says, don't think about Dalmatians, what are you thinking about? Corella and the 101, right? That's what happens. Paul says that's what the law does. Proverbs 9, 17, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret, tastes delicious. That's what the seductive woman wants to tell you. Once people started reading the law, Paul doesn't say the law made them sinners, but it does ignite a passion in some people to defy the rules and to live more flagrantly disobedient lives. Paul's saying the law is not the problem. Don't blame the law. It's your sins and your passions that have drawn you away. The old law promised life to Paul, but he says it ultimately brought death. Now this 9 through 11, we'll go quick. We're making good time. This, I was once alive, look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Paul was alive without the law once. What do you think that's about? 
Paul's saying, at one time in my life, I was alive without the law. I wasn't under the law, and I wasn't a sinner. When was that for Paul? Before his age of accountability. Paul says, I was alive without the law. But at some point, Paul grew up. He realized what the law said. He was in defiance of the law, and sin revived, and I died. Paul says, I was alive spiritually at one point. But then sin came alive and I died. If you're wondering about the age of accountability, like, well, did Andy just pull that out? The Bible says this. In Romans 9 and verse 11, it says that Esau and Jacob were in their mother's womb and before they knew good or evil. The Bible affirms that people aren't born in sin. We reach a stage or an age of accountability when we violate the will of God. But Paul says at one time in my life, I wasn't guilty. But then when the commandment came, sin revived and I died because the law was introducing Paul to what his sins were. And that's the whole point of the Old Testament law. Question. Look at your Bible. Read your Bible. Don't guess. Read your Bible. Read verses 12, 13, and 14 and start telling me some of the things that Paul says here about the, um, about the law. How does Paul describe the law? Real quick. Holy. Okay. What else? Righteous. Good. 14. What do we got? Uh-oh. So the idea that the Old Testament law was works, behavior, and the New Testament is spiritual, we didn't get that from the Bible. True or true? Because Paul didn't say that. See, Paul says the law is good and holy and righteous. What was the problem then? If the law is such a good book that's designed to show us who God is, reveal our sins to us, what's the problem with the Old Covenant? Everybody. S-I-N. What's the problem with the Old Covenant? Sin. Sin. Hebrews 8 and verse 8, the author of Hebrews says about the old law, finding fault with them, not with it. The old law was never the problem. you got to remember, who gave the old covenant? So if we insult the old covenant, we're ultimately insulting God. Would God give an inferior law? No. The old law was designed to show us who God is, show us our inability to fulfill it without Jesus Christ, and ultimately to preserve Abraham's seed line until the Christ should come. But the Old Testament is not the problem. Paul says that directly. Look at Romans 7 and um, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me by no means? The law didn't bring death to him. What does he say? It was what? Circle that word. It was sin. It wasn't the law. I'm going to say a few brief things about the Old Testament, then we're going to finish the chapter. Number one, these are things the Bible says about the Old Testament. From the Old Testament, we learn that we have hope. Romans 15, 4. Whatever things are written before time are written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Number two, the Old Testament teaches us to learn from bad examples and good examples, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse six. The Old Testament teaches us to live by faith, Hebrews 11. In the Old Testament, we're introduced to God and his character, Exodus 34, six and seven, and the Old Testament, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, introduces us at least in a premature way to Jesus Christ. He said that Timothy from a child knew the Holy Scriptures, which could make him wise concerning salvation through faith in Christ. We shouldn't disrespect the Old Testament. We should say the things about the Old Testament that the Old Testament says about itself and that the apostles say. It was never meant to be our law. Listen, the Old Testament was never meant to teach us how to worship. That's not what Paul says. It was meant to introduce us to sin so that our appetites would be spiritually wet so that when we saw Jesus Christ, we fall down at his feet, hug his ankles and say, thank God you're here to save me because the old law tells me I could have never done it myself. That's what the old law was always designed to do. And any other reading of it is a misreading of it. Any dismissing it, don't need Leviticus. 
snip the first 10 chapters of Chronicles out, forget the genealogies, it's a disrespect to the God who gave it. Paul says the law is holy, good, spiritual even, righteous. The Old Testament is not the problem. We are. Russell, go ahead. If we read it all through and through the Old Testament, we would not want to live under the Old Testament law. Correct. And we have to leave it all behind. We can't bring forth parts of it. Well, I like that part. Uh, would you like having to uh, have an altar and all the blood and the gory stuff there? No. <clears throat> would you like uh, being stoned for sin, cutting off an arm, a eye for an eye? Would you? Would we want all of that? We wouldn't. That's right. It's much better through Jesus. Yeah, that's exactly right, Russell. And Paul's gonna make that point as we close out. Remember, you're married to another person. And you can't be married to another person, according to Paul, and have your first spouse, the old law, as the screensaver on your phone, pictures hung up all around the house. I mean, you just can't do that. Paul's saying you've got a new husband now, a new husband in Jesus Christ, and there's nothing to be ashamed of about that. We don't despise the Old Testament, but we love the new. 14 through 25, and then we'll quit. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, or fleshly, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. All right, we've got four minutes. When you read Romans chapter 7, don't speed into thinking about your own life as a Christian because that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's going to say some things here that couldn't be true of you and me as a Christian, especially in light of chapter 6. Remember, sin doesn't reign in your mortal body. Paul's talking about a person. He's using himself as an example, but he's saying, remember, Romans 7, 1 through 6, you're married to a different person. Romans 7, 7 through 14, the law was good, sin was the problem. Romans 7, 14 through 25, he says, this is what your life looked like under the law. Remember trying to keep the law and how it worked out for you? It wasn't good. Here we go. The law is spiritual, but lawbreakers are sold under sin. What does that mean? Verse 14, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Talk fast or we're going to have to tell Randy to stop the clock. So you've got more time to talk fast. What does it mean to be sold under sin? Right, correct. But what does Paul mean when he says, under that law, I'm carnal, sold under sin. I'm fleshly. The law is spiritual, but I'm a fleshly person, sold under sin. What does he mean? We've been sold as what? Slaves. Under that law, I was a slave of sin. And all I kept doing was falling short and breaking the law. Verses 15 through 20, Paul already told you this. He's describing his life and life as a Jewish person under the law. I agree. Some things in these verses are true about the Christian life. We do have a fleshly struggle, but that's not what Paul's after in 15 through 20. Paul's talking about life in the flesh apart from Jesus Christ, especially in Romans 8. Paul's going to say there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. So whatever Paul's talking about in 15 through 20 is not about me as a Christian because he told me in 6, 12 through 14, sin will not reign in your mortal body. And then in Romans 8, he's going to say, you are free from the law of sin and death. In Romans 7, 15 through 20, he's talking about living life under the law and how dreadful it was. What was wrong with it? What does he say several times? When you want to do good, what keeps coming up? Evil. You have in your mind to do the right thing, but what ends up coming out? Paul says wrong. And that's the way the law worked. People wanted to try to do right, but life under the law without Jesus is a prison of guilt. All the old law can keep telling you is sinner, sinner, imperfect, lawbreaker, knew you couldn't, fell short, forgot a sacrifice, covetous, you couldn't justify. It couldn't transform. Paul's saying that happens in Jesus. There's a strong desire to do right. That's 21 through 23. But Paul says the law in our members won't let us do it because of the flesh. The desires and deeds do not match up. According to Paul, we need divine aid. Don't close your Bible just yet. Look at Romans 7. We're about to quit. Look at Romans 7 and how Paul ends it. Sarah's like, he saw me. I was not looking at you. I was just thinking in general. All right. Romans 7. Look at verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight the law in the inner being. That's, hey, I want to do what's right, but I see in my members another law. Russell mentioned the war. That's what's taking place. Look at verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Paul says, who's going to get me out of this situation where I just keep falling over and over again? I thank God through who? Jesus Christ. And then when you get to Romans 8, we're going to spend all of next week on Romans 8 and what Paul says about the spirit. But listen to me before we close. In the end, Paul is saying, we do not get W-2s or 1099s from Sinners R Us anymore. We don't work there. The law fulfilled its purpose. It was never meant to save. It was to draw us to Jesus. We can't be made right apart from works of the law. we got to be made right through Jesus. And then in Romans 8, Paul is going to say, you know, the only thing that can really help you live for God now, the thing that really makes the Old Testament different from the New in relation to our ability to obey is life in the Spirit. He says, human flesh and trying to do it your best. Try as hard as you want. Read as many Bible passages as you want. You can't do it apart from life in the Spirit. And in Romans 8, Paul's going to tell us what that means and what it's all about. Thanks for a good Bible class. <laughs>